welcome to the Mind Over MRKH podcast. I'm Ella May, the founder and director of Vava Womb and Mind Over MRKH, and I'll be talking all things MRKH, aka Mayer Rokitansky Kuster Hauser Syndrome, aka Malariogenesis. I am one of the one in 5,000 female babies born worldwide without or an underdeveloped womb, cervix and vaginal canal. On this podcast, I'll be talking all things MRKH from pleasure to dilating, mental and sexual health, fertility and navigating your MRKH journey. I'll be joined by advocates and experts along the way. This podcast aims to support the production and printing of the MRKH magazine project, where we aim to produce, print and post a magazine to our global MRKH community. If you want to join me on this podcast or ask me a question, pop me an email over at mindovermrkh at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at mindovermrkh. You are not alone. You are worthy and you are loved. Our first MRKH podcast episode is with Amy Lossie. Amy co-founded the Beautiful You MRKH Foundation and the Global MRKH Consortium. She earned a PhD in human genetics, channeling these expertise to transform health and well-being for the MRKH community through partnering with clinicians and scientists to drive research and improve care. She also loves snorkeling in blue water. The Beautiful You MRKH Foundation strives to improve health and empower the MRKH community through our core value of inclusivity. In our differences, we will find our greatest strengths. Hello, Amy, and welcome to the MRKH podcast. I am so excited to have you on. Um, I guess I just wanted to say, how are you first? Well, hello, Ellen. I am really good. And thank you for inviting me uh, to be part of your podcast. I'm super excited to talk to you about MRKH. <laughs> and where are you right now? Are you at home? I am at home in my, I call it my fireplace room. So uh, having a nice little fire and it's late afternoon. So sun's coming in and it's beautiful. Nice. Well, it's 8 p.m. here, so it's dark and my heating's broken. So oh, no. <laughs> I know I'm getting it fixed tomorrow. So I've got the dog in the corner, some candles and an electric heater in the other room. But it was too noisy for the podcast. <laughs> um, so anyway, you're my first guest on the podcast and actually the first person I've ever interviewed. Um, so have you have you done any podcasts before about MRKH or anything like that? So I did a podcast before for um, Alive and Kicking, which is uh, my other condition I have, which is Lynch syndrome, which is a congenital, it's a familial cancers um, cancer podcast for colon cancer. So we talked a little bit about MRKH in that, but not it wasn't it was really more about colon cancer than about MRKH. So this is my first podcast devoted to MRKH. Devoted to MRKH, lovely. Um, I guess I've skipped a bit, but do you mind just introducing yourself for our listeners? You don't have to delve into too much of MRKH, just about, about who you are and the foundations that you have um, founded, I guess. Yeah, so I'm Amy Lossie and I am, I guess, so hmm, what's my background? So I have a PhD, I earned a PhD in genetics and um, I was diagnosed with MRKH at 16. Um, and I guess that really led me to pursue a PhD in genetics because as I was uh, going through my diagnosis and treatment procedures, I thought, um, I, I, how does this happen? Not why, but how? And so really questioning how biologically this happened led me to pursue science and to pursue a PhD eventually in genetics. Um, and then, you know, I, pay, I went through sort of the academia route. I became a professor um, of genetics. And um, during that time, I really became interested in advocacy for MRKH. There's a lot of mes medical misinformation out there. And I really wanted to correct that and have be something permanent. And I wanted to create a place where people could go that was welcoming. And we did advocacy work. And there was, you know, really strong medical information on our website and we could be a conduit for that. And so in 2000, late 2010, I um, thought about founding Beautiful UMRKH Foundation and 
um, can talk a little bit more about that, but that's yeah. really what happened. And so I've been doing both um, genetics work and MRKH work since 2013, oh, 2012. And I currently have a job where I'm not doing lab work anymore, but I'm really supporting research on substance use disorders. And in my spare time, I work on MRKH. So that's sort of me in a nutshell. That is a very expert nutshell. <laughs> I think, yeah, I just, I don't know how you squeeze all of that in. And people have said that to me before about things that I do, but genuinely it's just really admirable. And I'm so glad that I found you as a teenager online and you're pretty MRKH famous in my eyes, to be honest. <laughs> um, I guess, can you tell us a bit about your diagnosis story? And I know you touched yeah. on being diagnosed at 16. Um, and I just want to, know a bit for our listeners what it was like to be teenage Amy with MRKH. Yeah, so teenage Amy, that's interesting. So um, so this was a long time ago. So this is 1984. So before the internet, before a lot of all the resources that are available right now. And um, I was 16, I hadn't gotten my period and I lived in a really small town of about 5,000 people. And so my mom took me to her doctor, just our family physician who my, my mom must've told him, you know, I hadn't gotten my period and a bunch of stuff. And so he had been in contact with a brand new OBGYN who had just moved to our town. And he already knew when I came in that there was a couple different possibilities this could be. And so he did his examination. I was scared, um, but he was kind. And he um, told me, well, there's two possibilities. You could have an imperfect hymen or there could be something else wrong. And I'm sending you to the local OBGYN for more information. And so that, you know, a week later, I had some tests done. I had some kidney function tests done and a few other, I had a chromosomal uh, analysis, just basically it's called a karyotype, looking to see if my, I had XX chromosomes or XY chromosomes. And um, after those, I met with my OBGYN, the OBGYN. And it turns out that, you know, he diagnosed me basically within a week with MRKH and he told me it was MRKH at that time. So that's really unusual for 1984 to be diagnosed within a week. Um, and also to have a little bit of information because he turns out he had been in a clinic that had an MRKH specialty. And so he referred me to the specialty clinic, which was about two and a half hour drive from my hometown. And so it was in Detroit. And so a month later, my mom and I drove to Detroit to meet the team. And, you know, it could not have gone better, to be honest with you. It was really standard of care. It's standard of care today. So in, in that clinic, I had, I met with endocrinologists. I met with, you know, psychologists. And I even got to meet a couple um, the wife had MRKH. And so, you know, I met somebody with MRKH within a month of being diagnosed and they gave me protect an hour of time with this couple where I could sit there by myself. My, my mom wasn't there and I could ask them any question. That's amazing. So you and so, it, right. It's amazing. So I knew right away, one, I wasn't the only person Two, I knew right away that I could have a fulfilling, happy life despite the fact that I was diagnosed with MRKH. So to me, like that's the ideal diagnosis story. I don't think it gets better than that. And so at that point, you know, um, I was given a choice. Do I want to do surgery? And, they, and at that time that really the only surgery done was a McIndoe, which is a the skin graft surgery or to do dilation. And the dilation strategy they gave me was the bicycle seat one, which terrified me. And I also know I'm the type of person that would probably not follow through with dilation. And so I chose to do surgery. And I would say if there's anything that was not ideal about my diagnosis procedure, it was the fact that I was diagnosed in June. I had my surgery in July. So that's very, very really, really quick and probably didn't give me a lot of time to process that. Um, I was already sort of sexually active um, and had, you know, tried a bunch of stuff and had really was in a committed relationship. And, um, you know, so I was motivated, but I don't think I would have been very good at dilation, just given 
the way I operate in general. So I did have surgery. Um, outcomes were fantastic. I have I had no complications or no issues. And you know, in fact, my surgery is still perfectly fine today. You know, almost forty years later. So I think for me, it was the right outcome. It's not the right outcome for everyone. Um, and I do think that if I had to do it over again, I would have tried dilation first, just because of the fact that with surgery, if you go for long periods of time you actually can stenose and get closed up. And then it's really hard to dilate surgical, surgical tissue. It's yeah. much easier to dilate um, tissue that's already been dilated. And so a lot of people who've had surgeries and, and after menopause actually need to go back and have revision surgeries because they've lost depth and width. So that's my only thing I would change about my whole procedure. But other than that, it was really as, about as good as it gets. Because in, yeah, in the UK, I think surgery is very rarely offered or encouraged and I think I don't know the reason being I think it's maybe because dilating has been very successful for people's people having happy penetrative sex lives if that's what people if, if that's, that's what you want, want to go there, if that's what you want exactly so do you think that you felt at 16 because you said you had the surgery so soon after being diagnosed that you almost thought that that was a way to just be not be fixed but did you feel like that was the only thing you could do to make you feel um like you could have sex. Did you have much of a pleasure, pleasure education back when you were 16? So I have a kind of interesting sort of sex philosophy. Um, and I was really, I, I started learning about sex with somebody that I really trusted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he and I learned about sex together. We were together when I was diagnosed, he was the first person who knew besides my mom. And I think he, my philosophy on sex is if I'm going to have sex with somebody, um, it's going to be about me and for me, just as, just as much as it is about for somebody else. Yes, love that. <laughs> um, I, I don't, I've never faked an orgasm. I refuse to fake an orgasm. I think it's cheating myself. Um, and I'm uh, inside. <laughs> so, um, I, I just don't see a point in, in that, uh, it doesn't serve anybody. And, you know, I think that, you know, sex is pleasure should be pleasurable for everybody involved. Um, and so I guess my philosophy on that is, um, I was ready to have, to, to have, in a, you know, penetrative sex. It's still not the most, you know, to me, it's not the be all end all, um, about sex. Um, yeah, agreed, <laughs> you know, it's, I, I, there's parts of it that are great, but there's parts of it that, you know, there's other things that are much more pleasurable from my perspective. So I, you know, that was sort of, I don't remember if I've answered your question or not, but no, um, yeah, that was, it was just around the, um, yeah, just around, around the surgery and, and I guess going for that straight away. Um, and I personally went, went through dilation, but only because it wasn't even offered or discussed that there was a surgery because I think they were trying to step away from uh, think making young people with MRKH feel that they had to do that. Um, so, you yes. know, my philosophy on that, though, is that it's a personal choice. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think any, I think what I, what I really like seeing in the community is that there's people in their 20s and 30s who are coming up to me and saying, you know, I'm really ready to pursue something. You know, what are my options? And to me, that's the greatest aspect of it, right? Because the whole sort of medical philosophy of, you know, penetrative sex and the sort of assumption on there is that I'm going to want to have penetrative sex is a bit misogynistic. Um, you know, and who knows, I may not even want to have penetrative sex. I'm, you know, just maybe something I don't want. And so I, I think probing that a little bit more, I think is really important. And so most of the physicians that we work with really recommend, you know, it's, that the person who's been diagnosed with MRKH drives that, you know? And I think that that's really important. And I do want to say that I did make that decision entirely by myself. Um, my parents really understood that that was my decision and not their decision and not the doctor's decision. Um, and so I did drive that, you know, in retrospect, it was quick, um, but it was completely my choice at the time. So, if that makes sense yeah totally and I, I feel exactly the same I think after a month of diagnosis I felt ready to go through dilation and I didn't feel pressured um but there, there is a pressure when it comes to 
language around if you dilate or if you have surgery then you can have sex actually we can have sex beforehand, before right? we dilate yeah or before we have surgery because we've got a clitoris we've got a vulva we've got all of those good bits yeah. that enable pleasure and um I didn't really know that to be honest before I went through the surgery so it, or sorry went through dilation um so yeah thanks so much for sharing that part of your journey with us that's it's a real great insight into how you were diagnosed because I don't, I don't think I've heard your story in, in in this like in this way in so much detail so it's really really nice especially leaders in our community so I don't think um, I've told anybody that part of my story before oh. <laughs> well that's what the podcast is for we're opening up so many like conversations it's amazing um so we've delved into sex which I absolutely love because you know what I'm like with Baba Wu and all that side of things so I guess back to a bit around your diagnosis what is and and navigating your MRKH life what has helped you cope during your MRKH journey so what have been your kind of coping mechanism mechanisms and I guess just to add on to that like how did MRKH affect you was it I know you said you had a quite a positive um as it can be diagnosis experience with with meeting someone and your doctor being really nice but how did that affect you emotionally and how did you cope yeah I mean it was devastating um I you know I don't I, I don't remember how I felt about the infertility component I don't remember a lot of that but what I do remember feeling is I'm really different I remember really thinking, okay, um, everything I've been taught in this world is that women have a uterus. Not necessarily that women have babies, but that women have a uterus. And now I don't have a uterus. So what does that really mean? Um, am I a woman? Am I not a woman? I questioned, uh, I spent about five years questioning my gender identity, questioning my sexuality, um, wondering really what that meant. and. Um, you know, in the end, I, I still don't know. You know, I, th I think that there's there's nuances to things, and um, I think I, I think that 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 to me was probably the part that I struggled with because back in you know the '80s, it was a really different world. You know, there's a lot of gender fluidity now in young people where there just was not at that time, and I think it would have been really kind of fun to have to to be in an environment where there is more gender fluidity where it's not much more accepted socially to do that mm -hmm. um just because it allows people to be who they are and you know as a scientist and as a woman in a very male dominated you know workforce there's times i really wish i had a penis there's times i really wish i were a man and i could just go you know go out to the go do stuff that men do and, you know, have a conversation and this, you know, in the bathroom, you know, That's because I think it helps it, people's yeah. careers a lot, you know, and you, you, you can easily go to the bar by yourself and, you know, meet people. It's just, there's a, things that are easier. I think if you're a male walking through this earth, um, that women don't are, just always are not quite at that level. And I think that's the part that bothers me the most, not so much that I am or I'm not, but oh I think there would have been more opportunities had I been born with Venus. Uh, so um, I don't know if that's also just kind of rambling, but that's, you know, kind of what I, my thought. No, was. it's really interesting. And I'm the same, I'm in a man's world of property nine to five. So I get what you mean. You think if you'd be you'd kind of be respected more if you were saying something as a man, which is such a bloody shame. And also um, on the wishing we had a penis, I think it's, we just need to know that there's so much power in our vulvas. There is, <laughs> yes. Uh, in terms of gender, and you were talking about like the current century, it's very much um inclusive and gender fluid and and i think there's a lot of work to be done within that community i just wanted to throw this question at you but what do you think of the um mrkh relationship with the intersex community because mm. i know that we are technically um part of having a difference of sex development um and you've done some really amazing responses to people having certain anxieties around identifying with the intersex community um i've personally felt a little bit more closely connected to that word but mainly because it was just misunderstood mm -hmm. and i misunderstood it when i was younger and the more i understand the word and the community and the people that are a part of it i do feel closely connected but also a bit more distant because i feel almost privileged in in the fact that i've got 
um, I'm, 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 I've got the body of my gender and I've got the chromosomes of my gender. So I just wanted to know what you felt about uh, the intersex community and that word intersex when it comes to MRPH. This is a loaded question. And, you know, I have to say, I'm very closely aligned with how you feel about it. Hmm. So when I first heard the term, which is when I was 16 and first diagnosed, it was a scary term. As a 16 year old, that term meant to me, I'm between sexes. Um, and I, I really started that. That's really why I started questioning my sex and my gender and my sexuality. And then um, I had an amazing opportunity to do, to really um, advocate in the intersex community. So as part of a pro project where I was an MRKH representative and a large, um, at that point, differences in sex development um, group and team and got to know the intersex community really well. And um, I think some of the most powerful meetings I've ever gone to are meetings where somebody had, who had androgen insensitivity syndrome um, sat across, you know, across the circle from me and told my story. Or somebody with congenital adrenal hyperplasia sat across the table from me and told my story. Someone with Sawyer syndrome sat across the table from me and told my story. And in those groups, what I learned was that the emotional aspects of MRKH is so closely linked to the emotional aspects of AIS, of, of CAH and of Swire syndrome and other sort of intersex conditions and intersex traits actually not conditions. Mm. And realizing that there are so many more similarities than there are differences. And I completely agree with you about the privilege aspect of this. I'm a cisgendered person mm. in an XX, you know, genetically determined body. Um, and so there is a little bit of, I can never really fully understand what someone with, you know, partial androgen insensitivity syndrome is going to go through, but emotionally, man, do those stories resonate with me. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and so at that point, you know, I began to realize exactly as you did the term intersect, the meaning of the term and intersex and how it's used is not the first thing you think of when you think of the term intersex. And so when I, that point clicked with me, that's when I had a complete 180 and said, we need to embrace the intersex community because to be honest, they are our closest allies and you know our closest, the closest people that we can actually work synergistically with. And so, man, have they done so much work so much yeah so much work right and so what we can learn from that you know those movements and those organizations has just really it 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 it's transforming our th my thought process and so um you know the one thing about beautiful you is that we really were formed on the core value of inclusivity mm -hmm. and so a big aspect of that is ensuring that everybody who has MRKH feels that they are part of this community. And uh, many people with MRKH really are intersex. And I don't wanna say identify as intersex because I think intersex is more than identity. So true, yeah. And so I think to me, that's important that everybody feel that they have a home because it's such an isolating community. And um, I understand the fear of that word. And I also think that if you sit at a table and you listen to someone else tell your story, it's very transformative and very powerful. And that's what I wish we could have happen because mm -hmm. I, think, I think that would really sink in with a lot of people that there are so many more similarities than there are differences. Yeah, that's so true. Thanks so much for sharing your thoughts on it, because I know it's a discussion that a lot of people with MRKH fear, but not because they're not inclusive and they're not, they don't respect other people's experiences just because that term is misunderstood and it doesn't reflect our truth when someone doesn't understand what it means. Um, so yeah, to be honest, with everything you've just said has really helped me as well. So in doing a podcast, I'm also learning and taking it all in. So thank you so much. Um, 
I guess we'll just do a little bit more about your journey as um, a young MRKH, but what has been the hardest moment for you um, with MRKH and maybe a bit around disclosure and how you've told different people throughout your life? Yeah, okay. So the hardest moment with MRKH was probably, um, yeah. Our hardest moment with MRKH happened when it, relatively, not that long ago, maybe uh, maybe 11 years ago. And so 10 or 11 years ago. And it was, and it was hard, it was hard in a weird way. Um, so I was at my parents' house and um, my, my youngest brother had just gotten married and we were all at my parents' house and my stepdad told everybody that they were pregnant, that my brother and his, my sister-in-law were pregnant. Well, first of all, my brother didn't get to say it. Um, so that was a bit awkward. But second, I didn't, I totally didn't expect it because I, I knew I didn't want to have kids. I was happy the fact that I didn't want to have kids, but this came out and all of a sudden I just start crying. And I couldn't stop. I couldn't not cry. And here I am, my poor sister-in-law is thinking I'm upset because they're having a baby and has had really had nothing to do with them. It was really about me being sad for me, knowing that I was never going to have that experience. Mm -hmm. And really it was a point in my life where I accepted that I was not going to have a, have a child. I was not going to be you know, having a genetic child. I was not going to be adopting children. That just wasn't going to be my life. And I, I was very happy for them and just so, so, so sad for me. And, and I think that part, that day was probably the hardest day I've ever had with MRKH because it was really the time when I had to put that away. Well, and really milestone of MRKH. My, mm -hmm. and, and I, and it was so public with my family and I made my sister-in-law feel terrible, you know, and, and I had to talk to my brother and explain to him. It's really not that I'm sad that they're having a baby. It has, you know, had nothing to do with them. And frankly, had they told me on the phone before I had gone there, that That's would never happen, you know, because I would have had 24 hours and all I needed was 24 hours to feel bad for me. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I love my nieces and nephews. I mean, I have 30 some nieces and nephews between my family and my husband's family, and I, I'm the best aunt in the planet, you know, so that's, but it was really just putting that piece of me away, you know, and that was really my worst day. Mm, no, that's really tough. And again, thanks for sharing it. So I know those tough moments are normally really personal and private moments with family and people close to you and I totally get that feeling of I'm really really happy for you but I'm really really sad for me so you're like I think a massive message to friends and family of MRKH is, is if you are if you have got the news sometimes it is just nice to pop us a little message first and just say I'm about to announce this rather than doing it in the moment because that can be so um, yeah, it can have such a huge impact on your triggered emotions, which you don't, you don't know what's going to happen in that moment. So um, I guess on the fact, Amy, that you don't have children, um, mm -hmm. how have you found sort of your, I know it's not in our sort of plan to talk about, but how have you found your um, child free life? And do you prefer the term child free or childless now? Because I guess maybe it's changed over time. Oh, I'm child free. <laughs> Hey, <laughs> um, I am completely hundred percent child-free. So that was tough. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that was hard. There were days that it was really difficult. And in the back of my mind, I knew I wasn't meant to be a mom. I, I really, I, I want, I thought about going to and doing IVF and having a gestational carrier, um, you know, different stages of my career and different stages of my life. And there are always these little barriers, right? And there are all these little barriers that I didn't find a way around them. You know, I'm the type of person that if I want something, I'm going to do that thing. So if all these barriers are put in place, it means I don't want to get around that barrier, really. You're like, why am I going to try if something's stopping me? Like, just because and, and I just felt like made it, me feel like that. <laughs> I knew inside of me, I'm like, you're meant to do something else. Mm -hmm. This is not what you're meant for. 
I didn't know what that was at the time. Um, so, so that, so I knew that. And then probably, I don't know, I was probably in my late thirties and I had one of my nephews come and stay with us for a week. And I'll never forget this day because this is the best day actually for Emmer Cage. Oh, um, so let's I go to the done first that. day done and that. the best yeah, day. I should have asked that. <laughs> and so this day, my nephew was coming to stay with us. He had just graduated high school. He was like 19 years old. So he's coming to stay with us. And I had a hugely busy um, day at work. I had grants too. My husband had a hugely busy week at work. And he's just, he's because he was getting ready for a football season. And he's like, he's yours. And I was like, what? He's your nephew. He's like, he's yours for the week. And I just thought to myself, this guy couldn't, he, at this point in his life, he couldn't like boil water. And so I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do with him? Like, I can't entertain this kid. I love, he's, I love my nephew. We get along really well, you know, but I'm like, I, I can't entertain for him. a week, <laughs> for a week. What am I going to do with him? And I, I really, I, and I realized in that moment that had we had children, my life would have been so different mm. and I would not have been able to pursue the career, the way my career, the way I wanted to, I would have had so many more responsibilities. I probably would still not be married to my husband because we probably would be divorced. <laughs> and just because of things that come up when you have kids and I realized what the freedom that and I realized at that moment, the freedom I had. I don't have to live by, I'm, and for no better word, I'm going to use this soccer mom rules. Like, I don't have to live by the rules that other people live by. I get to make my own rules. I love that. I get to live by my own definition of what success means. I get to do things the way I want them to do, want to do them. I don't have to follow anyone else's rules. And it was the most freeing day of my life. And I feel that freedom every single day. That's so, yeah, it is, it's an, probably, like you said, it was an emotional feeling when you had that milestone of thinking, I'm never going to go through this, but I'm just very, very happy for you as an MRKH that you've found that freedom and happiness in not having children, something that so many of you, so many of us feel like we have to have to have children because we've dreamt of it. And some of us do dream of having children. And that is a lot of our dreams and hopes. But I do wonder for myself, how much of that is society, and how much of it is me and how much of it is my hopes and dreams. Um, and also the fact that we can't get pregnant, how much of that makes you want it more. Um, so yeah, I, I do have a I do find it even though I I'm saying now I do want children one day. Um, I do find a lot of comfort in people living child free and having happiness and freedom with not having children because we are no less and you're no less of a woman and you're um, no less of a person for not having children. And that's and that's how it should be. Um, so, yeah, thanks for sharing that with us. Me. And I, I, do want, I, I do want to say like life gave me a lot of hints. And so I used to have these dreams in my 30s um, and maybe into my early 40s even where I would, I had a baby mm. and I would, I, my baby was in the crib and my baby would, you know, and they were wonderful dreams. Like I love these dreams. I, I try to stay asleep, but in, inevitably I would do something like not feed my baby. I would leave my baby for hours at a time on its I've own, <laughs> you know, when you're like, Oh, maybe this is not really, mm. you know, congruent. And so, you know, I find it kind of funny now when I have those like dreams or like you were a terrible mom. And um, even now, like, you know, recently I had another revelation. Like I had a whole bunch of stuff going on and I was doing a lot of this by my own, on my own. And I thought to myself, wow, you not really don't have the patience to be a mom. It takes an incredible amount of patience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I just don't think it would have been in the best you know, the best decision for anybody involved. So that's why I say, when I say I'm child-free, I've really, I've really enjoyed my life. Um, I found meaning in my life and I've been able to do and make the career that I wanted for myself. And I think, you know, for me, that's been important. And that should be celebrated just as much as mums and pregnancies. It's, we need to celebrate women and, and people more for careers and travel and things that they're doing rather than just reprodu reproduction not that reproduction isn't a beautiful amazing thing but um there is so much more to womanhood which is yeah I'm just loving everything that you said 
Um, and I guess uh, on to kind of your career, and I know that you've got a huge career um, in genetics and, and science, but could you tell us a bit specifically about Beautiful You and the yeah. charity that you've set up? Because it was the first, well, one of the first charities I saw with MRKH and I just loved it. I've even got a Beautiful You logo tattooed on my leg. So um, yeah, so could you just tell us a bit about when you set it up and what it's all about? Yeah, so... Beautiful You came around because in 2009, um, maybe about 2006, um, I was faculty member and I, I decided, you know, I need to start exploring the MRKH part of my life because I really hadn't done that yet. And that was in my late 30s. And um, so for those of you who are in their 20s and doing this now, man, I say hats off to you guys. Okay, so, you, you know, really, I didn't, I wasn't really ready to do it at that age. And so I was on these um, email threads and man, were they vicious. You know, it was a lot of fighting on them and a lot of fight, in fact, a lot of fights around intersex and a lot of fight, just a really kind of not a happy space. And there's a lot of medical misinformation. And I remember thinking, okay, no, we, let's, you know, correcting the medical misinformation, correcting it again. And I, I kept getting really kind of like, why is there no place where there's really accurate medical information out there? And, you know, I know, I knew about MRK, the MRKH organization, which is Esther's charity, and which is fantastic. I love MRKH organization. She's done a fantastic job with the missing vagina monologues and with everything she's done. And her, her mission is really focused on, on activism and advocacy and not so much on medical information and getting that out there. And so what I wanted to do is have a place where all of this was there. And it just, you know, it, it just frustrated me that there's this kept coming up and coming up and coming up. And at the same time, Christina started, got really angry at all the negativity on these on these email threads. And so she started MRKH Support and Awareness. And I, I was thinking to myself, I really want to start a nonprofit organization. I had just been through this entrepreneurship program um, where when I was faculty at Purdue and I proposed to start a nonprofit organization on something else. And I said, you know, why am I starting it on sending books to Africa? Why don't we start use this knowledge and start a nonprofit organization for MRKH? And she had just, you know, started this support group. And, you know, within two months, there were like 150, 200 people on MRKH support and awareness. And it was positive. Love and it, was a, <laughs> it was just this beautiful, positive space. And I thought to myself, she's got something. She has an ability to connect with people that I lack. She has an ability to really understand how someone's feeling and thinking. And I have the medical information and I'm a faculty member and I can make contact with clinicians pretty easily because I have those credentials. And so I thought to myself, maybe I should ask her. Green team. <laughs> and then, you know, I went to my mentor who was at that time, the chair of the Department of Human Genetics. Um, at my undergrad university, the University of Michigan, go blue, and um, talking about this. And she, you know, she said to me, it doesn't matter what else you do, but you have to start your foundation. And I do everything this woman tells me to do. Her name's Sally Camper and she's phenomenal. And so, you know, I said, all right, I'm going to start it. And I had just come out publicly and professionally with MRKH to um, a team, to a DSD team in Ann Arbor. And so I, you know, I, did this that scary thing because when I came I knew that if I came out publicly I also would come out professionally yeah and that's that's hard you know knowing that all my colleagues are going to be thinking about my vulva and my vagina you know it, it was a bit scary but I said it's time and so I came back from that meeting and I sent Christina an email I said you have no idea who I am I saw at your you know the work you've done with MRKH support and awareness it's wonderful I want to start a nonprofit organization. Do you want to start it with me? And, you know, when you think about it, I'm starting a business, someone I have no idea. I don't know. And so what we did was we took a year and a half to get to know each other. Oh, I like that. That's lovely. <laughs> and, and what we found in, that we had in common 
turned out to be our core value and that's inclusivity. And I, and I think the one thing that we drives, that's the thing that drives everything we do. I, I go back to that core value and I say, is what we're doing inclusive? Is what we're doing, you know, ensuring that everybody feels like they have as an equal opportunity to be here as anybody else? What do we need to do to make sure people feel they're included? Does there need to, do there need to be separate spaces so people can, you know, talk amongst themselves without having to worry about other people having thoughts about that? And, and I think to me, like, that's sort of why we started Beautiful You and how we started it. And so after a year and a half, we recruited um, my brother onto our organization. He's an attorney. And so he became our third board, third board person. And we purposely kept it small for two reasons. Um, well, a couple of reasons. One, I wanted to be nimble. Two, the biggest mistake I've made in my career, and it's my sort of my weakness I need to control is I like to do a lot of stuff. Mm. But when you do a lot of different things, sometimes you do them really shallowly, you know? Yeah. And you don't do them <laughs> as good as you possibly could, right? Yeah. And so I wanted to take the lessons that I learned from that and not do those with Beautiful You. And so we started really small and nimble so that we could, excuse me, really just you know concentrate on the activities we knew we could do with little funding and sort of build from there. And so that was, that's our philosophy and that's how we started. And honestly, I cannot imagine doing this with anybody else. Like, Christina is lovely. So I've spoken to her many a time virtually, again, not properly met, but yeah, she's a pretty incredible woman. Incredible. <laughs> well. um, so yeah, I mean, like I said, the beautiful you and that Facebook page, how many members have, are on that? Because there's the private Facebook group as well, isn't that, which was part yes. of Yes. So the private Facebook group, we don't run. Um, you know, that's administered. I think the experiences group is administered by several other people that yeah. has over 3000 people. And I think Emmerich support and awareness has a little under 3000 people now still like thinking about it in 10 years, we went from zero people to over 3000 people. That it's is incredible. amazing. It makes my heart warm because it was when I was 21, like you, you just touched on sharing your story for the first time. My first step of sharing my story was actually figuring out who, what community I was in because I wasn't even part of any of these Facebook groups and I'd gone years without even looking at MRKH on Instagram and Facebook and that was one of your group and the other the other private group one of the first groups I looked at and just was like oh my god there's 2,000 people here and they were all over the world and that's what that was just the most um, like uplifting moment in my 20s was was finding those groups so what before you started the beautiful you what um just quickly because I know we want to move on to genetics and loads of other, loads of other stuff there's too much to talk about um what sort of uh support did you have before you set up your charity so who were you speaking to in the community and how did you find Christina oh, okay so <laughs> we did something super fun before we set up before we set up beautiful you so in 2009 somebody uh, there were a couple of the people who are administering these email groups one lived in and really close to um they lived in Detroit, so really close to where the Michigan groups are. Mm -hmm. And there was a couple people in Michigan. And so the five of us met up and um, basically had a women's weekend and just laughed like you wouldn't believe. And in this, in this group, every year what we did was we sponsored someone to go to this meeting, so someone who couldn't afford to go. Mm -hmm. And so we would pick them up and make sure they got to go. People who really needed support from these online, really email groups. And we just would have fun. You know, um, but invariably what would happen is that, you know, a lot of people would sign up to go and only half would show up because it's scary. It's terrifying. Yeah. yeah. Right? And so I realized there that, okay, this is scary. It's really scary for some people to come. And I thought, okay, that's, that's, that's understandable. Um, and so those are the first sort of MRKH support sessions that we did but boy were they some of the most fun things i've ever done we just laughed 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 um and then you know other than that my support system was really narrow um my support system was well so the guy who i was dating in high school the first person i told um ended up being my husband oh yeah story. <laughs> yeah so um he's been a 
just my biggest supporter throughout, it's not just MRKH, throughout life, you know, and really he's the person who's pushed me. Um, he's the person who's really, you know, stood behind me and, and really made sure that I'm living the best life I can. Mm. And I think, you know, he's one of 10 kids. So for him, having biological children never was that important. He was put off. He's like, I don't think I need, you know, and like we, you know, his immediate family is 50 people, you know, and I love it. I love being part of a big family and we never felt the pressure to have kids Mm -hmm. from, from his parents or my parents or no one really pressured us to have children. So I think I didn't have that pressure. So he was supported you in all ways and also had the same mindset of you with children, which obviously is a, that's a deal match, a match in heaven, match made in heaven. <laughs> yeah. So, so he's been my, my main supporter throughout my entire life. Um, and really like my, my cheerleader. Um, I, you know, my family, we didn't talk about it. So the, you know, I didn't talk about MRK with my parents for 30 years. Oh, wow. I was just going to really, I was going to touch on that, actually. You spoke about um, coming out, I like to call it, in the outside world, outside of your, I guess, I was going to say family, but I know that you said that you haven't spoken to them. Um, so how, when you first told the um, your story online, professionally and uh, publicly, I know that publicly means it was out there professionally, how, how did that feel? Um, and then maybe we could talk a bit about not speaking to your family and, and how it affected or had an impact on your relationships as well. So a bit about disclosure. Yeah. A bit about favorite disclosure. word. <laughs> so I was I was the person, I don't know if you saw Sunny's video on disclosure, but part of it was talking about awkward disclosure. So I was yeah. the awkward disclosure person. <laughs> so my first attempt at disclosure that I really remember vividly was I went away to university or college as we call it here. And so I was in a dorm with two other people, a dorm room with two other people. I walk in the dorm there, they're already there. The first thing I said is, hi, I'm Amy. I was born without a uterus. Oh, I love that. <laughs> hey, uh, Amy, I've got no womb. <laughs> and I think I was like, what? <laughs> you know, so that was about as awkward as it gets. So I'm, I was completely the awkward sharer. Um, and, you know, in college, um, there's somebody who wanted to date me and, um, I didn't really want to date this person, but, um, you know, I told him that I was born without a uterus and I really couldn't, you know, have children. And, uh, you know, that really, he was really upset by that. And he's like, well, according to Darwin, you're dead. And I just was like, okay, well, you know, according to me, you're dead. (laughs) You know, like, I I, I don't really want to date you. So why do I care what you're saying? You know, it's something that's in your brain that you need to deal with on your own. But, you know, I'm not going to date you. And, you know, especially if you are conflicted about, you know, who I am as a person and my value, because I am unable personally to bear children, then this needs to just end totally reflects on him and not you exactly I was like it wasn't worth it wasn't worth it at all MRPH has the power to weed out people that we that aren't worth our time (laughs) well it's like so that really means you are a no non-starter there's there's Hmm. nothing there and so you know I think those are some of my awkward disclosures Hmm. um and then um since starting beautiful you I am like the total power discloser. So my favorite people to disclose MRKH to are Uber drivers. Love that. (laughs) Can you tell us an Uber story? (laughs) So I have many. So a lot of times I take an Uber to the airport on my way to an MRKH meeting. And so they always ask, so where are you going? You're going to the airport. I'm like, oh, I'm going to go. I have a nonprofit organization. You know, well, what's it on? I'm like, oh, so it's women who are born with incomplete development of the reproductive tract. You know, it's under development of the uterus and, and, and vaginal canal. And so either they go silent or they start asking questions about it. And my philosophy about ex- disclosing to Uber drivers is a lot of times here in Washington area, um, Uber drivers are from countries where having MRKH would be very shameful Mm. and be filled with stigma. 
And true. so I feel like if I can talk about it with them and let's face it, they had, I'm a captive, they're a captive audience. They have either, they shut me out, which is fine. I don't care. Or they learn something and most people want to learn about it. And I think it's because I'm really open about it. Mm. You know, I, I'd say, you know, I, I, I silence rooms. I say vagina, 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 and people just, yes, and, vagina. I, and so people, I said, and I said, I just silence rooms, you know, and then it sort of disarms them a bit because it's, it's, a topic that they may want to know more about, but wouldn't want to talk about it with maybe their friends and family. But and it's on them. Their discomfort is on them, not on you. Cause you're exactly. like, I'm, I'm fine with this. So if you're not, that's fine with me. <laughs> exactly. And so we end up having conversations about it. And I, and I really hope that in one of those conversations, hmm. you know, it's affected a family member or a friend, and maybe they've brought information back to people that know that, Hey, this is happening. It's not shameful. It's not, you know, there's, it shouldn't be shameful. Sh there shouldn't, shouldn't be any stigma about it to me. Like that's the importance of disclosing embarkation. Mm -hmm. Now it's all about who needs to hear something. I've definitely been, I love that because I've been out with some of the MRKH girls in London um, and we've gone out and all had a few glasses of wine and there's people that we've met of come and sit at our table and they go, how do you know each other? And we all look at each other and just crack up because in that moment, it's just so funny that we've got this very like rare story. And sometimes we do go in and go, make sure that everyone's comfortable in that moment, obviously, because you don't want to suddenly disclose for someone else. But there has been moments when we've gone, we've, we, we're all born without a womb, we're one in 5,000, we've met online. And these people, are so the reactions have always been so positive and just like, wow, that's incredible. And oh my God. And, and, and then they learn about MRKH and then they go home and, if they if they ever encounter anyone with that condition, they'll understand it based on the drunk girls that they met on Friday the other week. So yeah, I love that, and I think next time I'm in an Uber, at some point I'll promise to disclose to an Uber driver, and I'll let you know how it goes. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> it's really it an MRKH challenge. <laughs> it's really fun because you know what are they going to do? Hmm. But and I also think you know usually they're in a place where they maybe maybe I can help somebody. You know, absolutely. So. Um, it's a really important point you made about um, disclosing to different cultures and communities as well. Um, just quickly on that point, I mean, going back to Beautiful You, what does the future look like for Beautiful You? Um, I've seen some amazing stuff on the research you're funding for, so I'd love to hear a bit about this. And then we'd love to talk about um, your plans on how we can reach wider communities and different cultures and different people um, who are really affected by Mark AH, uh, for example, girls in Afghanistan and in uh, less sort of wealthy areas. Uh, but yeah, anyway, the future for, of Beautiful You, I'd love to hear what your plans are and, and what the donations will do for you guys. So, yeah, so our plans for Beautiful You are multifold. So, you know, we turned nine this year hey. and we have sort of like a bullseye, um, goals, right? So our, our, our most central goals are support. And we wanted something that we could do without, with really minimal funds. And I think we've really done a good job in that area. And to me, like, you know, when we started Beautiful You, there are four people in the United States who would publicly say, say they had MRKH, Esther, Christina, Jacqueline Mish, and me. And now, I mean, look at how the hundreds, maybe even thousands of people with MRKH who are advocating. Like to me, that says it all about support. Mm -hmm. There's a community now where people feel like I can talk about this. And to me, like that's a huge win, right? And so- Domino effect of courage and people coming out online. Cause I, I just quickly, I remember searching the hashtag MRKH when I was in my twenties and looking and telling my story. And you're right, there was only- maybe three Instagram pages, a few stories. And now there's over 5,000 posts on Instagram about MRKH and it's just growing and growing and growing. So it's just, I thank you for being one of the first and for being someone that's brought so much courage to other people. And because there was people before me that told their stories that led me to telling my story that has now led to other people telling their story. And I know that success isn't telling your story online. There's many ways to be proud, um, but it is, it's helped the advocates come out of the woodwork and the people that do want to help others. So yeah, anyway, back to the future so, for you. <laughs> so, so, you know, there's a several things we've known are lacking in the community. Hmm. And one of the things that we're spending a lot of time and effort in is making sure that people who have different voices, those voices are heard. 
So we created a belonging team just before the pandemic started. Um, and we're working, that team's working really hard to really understand the experiences of, of people with, from all different races, backgrounds, cultures, um, sexual orientations, you name it, trying to understand their experiences and what their specific needs are. So that's one thing we're working on. Um, and I think it's one of the most important things we're doing, especially if you're gonna really live the, the core value of inclusivity. So that's number one. Um, number two, it sort of ties into that and that's bringing a bigger sense of community. And so um, we are reinvigorating our ambassadors program, at least for the states, and we're probably take it internationally, but not, not right now. We wanna get this going in the states first. And so we're having um, five regional um, groups around the United States where they'll be hosting you know, more often Zoom meetings and in-person meetups when we can and stuff like that. So we're putting a lot of effort into that and it's led by two fantastic MRKH advocates, Elise Friedman and Kristen Peterson. They're doing an outstanding job. Um, we're gonna be bringing some more awareness and sort of talking about what we're doing through newsletters mm -hmm. and um, other other things like that, and including interviewing people. I really want to champion people who are creating things, mm -hmm. um, people with MRKH who are creators, and what are we putting out there into the world on that? So look for that kind of work coming up in the future. Um, and so those are sort of the advocacy outreach things that we're doing. Um, we continue to partner with our MRKH clinicians in the States to you know, either pursue research or try to figure out better ways to do things that we're doing right now clinically. So those are other things that are also in our plans for the future, um, as well as provide educational materials and just really sort of take it up to the next level. So we're, you know, for the first eight years, Christine and I did just about everything. Mm. And so what we've done in the past, you know, year or two is really recruit a second layer of, of people to, who can, you know, take on projects that they think are important. Yeah, and I think that's so, it's amazing to build teams because so many charities and people and advocates have visions, but a lot of these visions you can't do single-handedly. You need to have all these amazing people who are willing and behind, like, behind the scenes making things happen. And I think one of the biggest things um, for all of the charities and advocates is that there's so many behind the scenes advocates that you don't see on Instagram or on Facebook and they're just as important and just as like amazing and magical for our community um, so yeah, that's really exciting and I'm, I'm so excited about all the work that you do and I see a lot of the stuff around the research and all the big projects and I know that you've done events like the disclosure workshops and things like that and I think together with all the different charities and all, all of us um there's just so much that we can do for the next person being diagnosed um so yeah i guess is there anything else that you wanted to touch on no, do. so yeah, like, the yeah. other thing we're working on so just just the other major project is global mrkh and what we are planning with this is actually creating a coalition of both, about global. <laughs> yeah, of both um and this has been a partnership you know um really strong partnership first with sisters for love and yeah. you know now with multiple other teams in there and and ali is the co as one of the co-founders of that so what we're doing with global is doing it's a two multi-pronged approach the first is to bring together other support groups and people doing mrkh advocacy around the world and then what we really want to do is um model model ways to really have effective clinician um, advocacy group partnerships mm -hmm. and the way we've done it here in the states and that's to have an equal partnership with the clinicians and the advocacy groups and that's something that's really hard to do and so the second arm of global is to add the clinical aspect on as partnerships in all of the countries where we have the advocacy groups mm -hmm. so that when we're improving care it's 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 being done with an equal partnership as much as possible that's so important because there's so many MRKH doctors, medical uh, staff, hospitals that, and so many girls that get diagnosed in so many different places around the world. And even in the UK, there's not one story of diagnosis. There's not one GP or one person that knows about MRKH. And just to collate kind of uh, one way of supporting someone and the right way of supporting someone, I think is like the work that you guys do is just really, really important. And I can't wait to um be a part of it at some point and just yeah. um yeah just just and just try and help the wider and the bigger picture of mrkh which is that newly diagnosed person 
coming into this amazing community through something so painful and horrible um so yeah it is really really amazing and I can't wait for global to kick off I mean it's already kicked off with the amazing campaign for the uh, girls in Afghanistan and that was really really impactful um and I was really really proud to be part of that with you and Ali and everyone as well so Amy we're just going to end the podcast shortly and I just wanted to ask you how you navigate your advocate advocacy and your life outside of MRKH so how do you find that MRKH and life balance yeah I'm not very good at that um, <laughs> to be honest with you, I'm really not. I have a really pretty, um, my day job is pretty demanding. And so, so is the work I'm doing here. But I found they're synergistic. And so things that I do in my day job make my MRKH advocacy better. And my, my MRKH advocacy work makes my day job better. So they're synergistic. And, and to be honest with you, this is my passion project. And so I, I'm at the point in my life where this is more important to me than a lot of other things are. And so, um, you know, I, I've had other times in my life where I had a really great work-life balance and right now it's just not the time for that. Right now is the time for really setting up this infrastructure and really thinking about what does the MRKH community need and how can, how, how can we play a part in that and um, kind of go from there. So, but I will say I'm leaving on a two week holiday. Um, Thursday. Oh, I'm going to go like my, my, my respite is blue water. And so I'm going to be snorkeling every day, um, rain or shine, as long as it's not lightning, I'm going to be in the water. So that is how I, I, uh, I, uh, that's my work-life balance is getting in blue water as much as possible. And have some peace. Um, and I just wanted to ask you what your message to the next girl or person being diagnosed with MRKH would be. Oh, my message to the next person who's di diagnosed with MRKH is make time to take care of you. You know, make time to really think about how this is affecting you. You know, make time for your own mental health. Um, and, you know, sometimes that means sitting with pain And the more you're comfortable doing that, you know, the quicker you're going to get through the pain the next time, because the pain is always there. If you, you know, try to end it soon, it'll come back to you, mm. you know, and so really trying to really trying to take care of your mental health. To me, like that's the most important thing for everybody in the MRKH community, because this is hard. And if you do ad advocacy work, it's important for you to put in place a plan for your own mental health. So that's what I would say. That's, um, that's amazing. I love that message. I'm gonna keep that with me for a while. Um, so yeah, Amy, it's been absolutely amazing having you on and thank you for making it such a pleasurable experience. I've learned so much from you just talking about um, everything that you know and that you feel and that you've, you've been through obviously touches me in different ways but um yeah it's also learning and learning from people who have gone before you in this big advocacy world so thank you so much and I cannot wait to continue working with you connecting with you and um also doing some more episodes on more specific things such as genetics and um, a lot more delving into your expertise in the MRKH world so I can't wait to have you back on and um, joining up with you more in the future. So yeah, thank you so much. Have you got anything else for our listeners you wanted to add? I just add? want to say thank you so much for inviting me on your podcast, LMA. This has been wonderful. Um, really a great, a great platform. You're a fantastic interviewer. Oh, and I was nervous. I just, <laughs> and you, I mean, really, I feel 100% comfortable with you and I appreciate everything that you've done for the MRKH community because you're bringing you're bringing awareness to the pleasure component that has been hidden for so long and too long. And I, I, I'm very proud of you for really taking the hard work because that's hard work. And so, you know, we need this more than, more than we know. And I'm so, so thankful for you to bringing this to, the, to our forefront. That's, you're going to make me cry on the first podcast. <laughs> no, that really, really means a lot. And yeah, I'm, 
like you said, sometimes I'm overwhelmed with the stuff that I'm doing, but I do really enjoy um, working on Baba Womb and the MRKH world. But most of all, I just love being part of all of you and learning from everyone and being part of this community. So yeah, thank you. That means a lot. And yes, I've done my first interviewing episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, I'll let you go. Have a, an amazing uh, December and amazing Christmas. And I will speak to you, I'm sure, very soon. All right. Thanks, LMA. So good to see you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you so much to Amy for joining the MRKH podcast. I can't wait to see what the future holds for the Beautiful You MRKH Foundation. You'll be hearing more from Amy in future episodes on the genetics of MRKH and her expertise in this field. Please check out the links in the description of this podcast and support the work that the Beautiful MRKH Foundation do by donating to them directly or sharing their work. Thank you so much for listening to the Mind Over MRKH podcast. We will have regular new episodes, so please follow and subscribe. If you want to come for a chat, get in touch. And to everyone with MRKH, you are not alone.